This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for listeners like you. One that you might like is Light in Gaza, Writings Born of Fire, edited by Jihad Abu Salim, Jennifer Bing, and Mike merriman Lotz. Gaza, home to two million people, continues to face suffocating conditions imposed by Israel. This distinctive anthology imagines what the future of Gaza could be, while reaffirming the critical role of Gaza in Palestinian identity, history, and struggle for liberation. Light in Gaza is a seminal, moving, and wide-ranging anthology of Palestinian writers and artists. As political discourse shifts towards futurism as a means of reimagining a better way of living, beyond the violence and limitations of colonialism, Light in Gaza is an urgent and powerful intervention into an important political moment. As Ali Abunima puts it, this brilliant, funny, and inspiring collection of stories and essays by writers in Gaza was exactly what I needed to reinvigorate my hope and determination to work for a future that uplifts us all. Light in Gaza, out now from Haymarket Books, and available on haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Last week's episode was my interview with Gail Radford on her wonderful book, Modern Housing for America. We discussed Catherine Bauer and the Labor Housing Conference's New Deal-era efforts to make the U.S.'s new public housing system a social housing system that might appeal to and house the majority of Americans. But real estate reaction and rising conservatism defeated those efforts. The upshot was the two-tier housing system that came to define the American 20th century. An underfunded public housing system reserved for the very poorest and directly subsidized by the federal government, alongside a much, much larger system of private homeownership, indirectly and much less visibly, but heavily subsidized by the federal government. That underfunded public housing system sometimes subjected tenants to awful conditions. It also reflected and reinforced the residential segregation that remade the suburbanized American metropolis. But by and large, the public housing that was constructed throughout the mid-20th century has also given poor people, particularly poor black people, decent homes that the private market would not provide. The often racist stigma generated toward public housing does not and has not reflected people's lived realities. And, as has been said, nobody likes public housing, except the people who live there and those who want to get in. And in many American cities, you will wait years and years on a wait list to get in because so many people need public housing and can't get it because the supply is so limited. And that's if the wait list is even open, which it's not in many cities. This week's episode is my interview with Edward Getz on his book, New Deal Ruins, Race, Economic Justice, and Public Housing Policy. 
Getz tells the story of the destruction and dismantling of public housing that took off in the 1980s and accelerated during the 90s under the Clinton administration's Hope 6 program. The stigmatization and demonization of public housing, and then its demolition, about half of which took place under Hope 6, reduced the number of public housing units by 370,000 from the early 1990s to the late 2010s. The hope in Hope 6 stood for housing opportunities for people everywhere. In fact, it was a neoliberal project to end public housing as we know it and remake cities for capital and the well-to-do. All of this history matters. Right now, in the wake of the destruction of public housing that Getz discusses, housing organizers are looking back to the social housing agenda that Radford memorialized in Modern Housing for America. Soon, I'll be doing an interview on what social housing might look like today, from here in Rhode Island, where I'm involved in organizing around that, to all over the United States. I don't know if you noticed, but I rewrite my pitch for you to support The Dig at patreon.com slash The Dig. I rewrite it each and every week because I know how easy it is to fast forward past people asking you for money. I do it all the time myself. But the reason I ask you for money, and there is a reason, is because this podcast would just straight up not exist without listener support. And the weird amazing thing we do at The Dig is that support comes voluntarily, so we don't have to paywall a damn thing to squeeze donations out of people, which means that everyone is able to listen regardless of your ability to pay. And that is really important to us. That said, we will also send you a book or books or a tote bag or a mug in the mail if you contribute at least $10 a month or more. Please contribute now. Contribute what feels right. Do it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Also, Contributions get you our weekly newsletter delivered to your email inbox. It's a really good newsletter. You can also check them out for free at thedigradio.com, alongside the entirety of our vast archives. Okay, here's Edward Getz, professor of urban planning and director of the Center for Urban and Regional Affairs at the University of Minnesota. He is the author of The One-Way Street of Integration, Fair Housing and the Pursuit of Racial Justice in American Cities, Clearing the Way, Deconcentrating the Poor in Urban America, and the book we're discussing today, New Deal Ruins, Race, Economic Justice, and Public Housing Policy. Edward Getz, welcome to The Dig. Thank you very much. Let's start this interview about public housing at the beginning with the New Deal era defeat of proposals for a more expansive social housing system. Instead, the United States got this two-tier housing system that provided massive but politically less visible subsidies to white middle and working class people to become homeowners, coupled with public housing for the very poorest people who were disproportionately black. I discussed this with with Gail Radford at a great length, but but to frame our discussion, how was public housing as we came to know it shaped by the moment of its creation in the 1930s? Sure. I, I think it's important to note that almost all housing policy that we pursue and have pursued historically in the United States has generally been pursued for a lot of other reasons other than um, than their housing outcomes. And uh, this is uh, true of those uh, largely invisible subsidies to the middle class that you were 
mentioning earlier. Um, those were pursued as a means of resurrecting the, uh, the housing market and getting people back to work. And public housing, in a similar respect, was seen as a way of jumpstarting the economy in the middle of the Depression in the 1930s. Um, it was felt the construction jobs that would ensue from a, a robust public housing effort uh, would be helpful in turning around the economy, getting people um, uh, back into employment. And then all of the follow-on kinds of uh, economic impacts would trickle throughout the economy and, and be part of, of the great recovery. So, so that actually played an important role. The, the fact that public housing was oriented towards the lowest income members of society wasn't actually uh, intended at the beginning. Uh, public housing was meant to be a way station for people who were temporarily poor because of the effects of the Great Depression. So from the beginnings, uh, many of the tenant screening criteria that um, were applied by public housing authorities across the country, in fact, uh, disqualified the lowest income uh, members of the population and instead focused on uh, families that were uh, working poor or temporarily disrupted by the, uh, by the Great Depression. And so uh, this was uh, an important fact in, in understanding how public housing came to look. Public housing became majority black in many places, in part because it was means tested and so limited to the poorest of the poor. And poor people are disproportionately black. But it was also, of course, because black people were shut out of that federally subsidized private homeownership system, all, all at a time when black people amid the Great Migration were leaving the Jim Crow South and arriving in segregated metropolitan areas where they struggled to find housing in, in small and overcrowded black ghettos, all at the same time, of course, that they were facing discrimination amid the onset of urban deindustrialization, meaning that there were growing numbers structurally excluded from the labor market. But how did that shift in public housing take place from that initial idea of serving the temporarily poor during the Great Depression to serving disproportionately black people structurally excluded both from the labor market and from the homeownership market. How did that shift occur? Uh, when, the, when the program began in the 1930s and well into the 1940s, it was not uh, identified with uh, black people per se. It, was, it had no, no racial identification one way or the other. Um, it was only in the 1950s uh, and then into the 1960s when you saw a significant shift in the demographics of public housing. And that happened for uh, a couple of reasons. The first was that the economic expansion in the post-war era started to open up different housing opportunities for working class uh, and lower income households. And that kind of opening up of the economy wasn't, those opportunities were not available to black people. So what you saw was a greater opportunity structure for working class whites uh, in the post-war era. And they began to move in, uh, in large numbers out of central cities, out of public housing into a rejuvenated housing market that included more rental housing, but also included 
uh, more uh, subsidized forms of home ownership also extended really primarily to a white population. And as whites moved out of public housing, public housing, remember, was still fairly new then and, uh, and still in fairly good shape. And it represented the best housing option for many blacks living in, uh, in central cities uh, all around the country. And so as more vacancies uh, occurred, more uh, black families uh, applied for and moved into public housing. And that transition occurred during the 1950s and then the 1960s. I think the other thing to note is that poverty began to change in important ways in the 1960s. It it feminized a bit. It became more intergenerational than uh, it had been uh, in the past. And both of those kinds of phenomenon hit black population uh, much more so than uh, it did the white population. And so at the same time that public housing was becoming racially identified with, uh, with African-Americans, the incomes and the earning potential of public housing population uh, really declined relative to the prosperity that the uh, rest of the economy was experiencing. Federal law required, I think from the get-go, that, that PHAs enter, public housing authorities, PHAs, enter into cooperation agreements with local government before constructing a housing project. And you, you write, quote, this feature of the program created one of the ironies of public housing, that it was more effectively fought by its opponents after its passage than before. How did devolving the conflict over public housing to the local level shape what public housing became, and specifically its place within these metropolitan housing systems? The, the ultimate decision about accepting public housing and locating it was left to local governments. And so local governments had to actually opt into the program and take conscious steps to create a housing authority that would receive the federal subsidies that helped build public housing. And this led to a lot of politicking at the local level and led to an important amount of influence um, over the way this nominally federal program was uh, operated at the local level. So again, as I said, communities could opt in or opt out. And most of the communities that opt in were those that were suffering significant housing problems and shortages, and those were central cities. But suburban areas did not uh, have to uh, join the program, and uh, they often resisted doing so. This is the kind of first factor that led to a concentration of these units in central city areas as opposed to suburban areas. But the other thing is that a lot of these local agreements, they included the power of approval on individual projects. Uh, so not just approval over whether the city as a whole would create a PHA and participate, but once there was a PHA and once the, it was operating and attempting to build public housing, oftentimes local governments, city councils then would exercise uh, authority over where those units were built. And so would end up placing those units in uh, in neighborhoods that were um, typically located in redevelopment areas in pla- in neighborhoods that were that had declined uh, over uh, previous decades and in neighborhoods that were disproportionately occupied by people of color and so 
That's what led then to the kind of segregation of public housing, even within cities. By the late 1930s, as, as I discussed with, with Gail Radford, the real estate industry was strong enough to defeat proposals for social housing and create this more limited system of public housing that, that came to exist in the United States. And that system was one that limited public housing to poor people that the private real estate industry was not going to serve, which meant that the private sector didn't have to worry about government competition. But but you write that in the 1940s, the opposition to public housing grew even stronger. And as a result, it was close to getting killed off entirely in the mid-20th century. And, and it only survived by becoming attached to a larger program of urban renewal. But but before we get to urban renewal, which I do want to talk about, what accounts for this intensified opposition to public housing at that moment, given given that public housing was already limited to serving only those people who private industry didn't find it profitable to serve? Why the opposition, if the forces of opposition already seemingly had gotten everything they wanted? That's actually a very good question. I think uh, in part, it has to do with the difference in the political environment between 1937, when the program was initially created, and then 1949, when it had to be uh, reauthorized. In 1937, we're still in the middle of a depression. We are in a situation of crisis uh, economically, and it's a, a pre-war period where anti-communism uh, wasn't as uh, as virulent a, a political um, strain as it became in the years after World War II. 1949 is a is a completely different kind of political economy and and political environment, and this is the year that the the public housing program has to be reauthorized by Congress. You have a a and so it's a combination then of a, a rejuvenated and more vigorous opposition from the real estate industry, as you as you uh, described, which is still concerned uh, about its role and its prerogatives in the uh, in the housing market. And uh, and they're simply better organized uh, at this point. They've uh, seen 10 years of 10 to 12 years of public housing. Uh, it becomes equated with uh, socialist housing and so there's this ideological uh, kind of attack against public housing. It becomes something much bigger. It's, it, it's about big government. It's about uh, larger ideological questions in 1949 than it had been in 1937. And that's, I think, what accounts for a significant strengthening of the opposition to it. You see some of the uh, this ideological opposition already present in the the mid nineteen thirties. I uh, came across this quote from the president of the Atlanta Real Estate Board, who said, "Quote: The working classes of this country will rue the day when they are housed in government owned, government built, and government regulated houses. Masters house their slaves, but free men house themselves. Those who are descendants of pioneer American stock will not regard as home." a unit in a fine building built at taxpayers' expense in a slum clearance project. Yeah, powerful words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it really gets it really touches on on everything there. Um what, yeah, what was urban renewal, this this broader project that public public housing got got attached to 
1949, and how did its overriding agenda of slum clearance shape what public housing became? And then how did that mid-20th century urban renewal moment compare to the slum clearance that had also accompanied the initial wave of public housing construction? Sure. So 1949 is uh, is is when the Urban Renewal Act was uh, was passed by Congress, and at this point, as I mentioned before, we're we're coming out of World War II. The uh, economy is expanding rapidly, but American cities have have been going through a couple of decades of uh, disinvestment and decline, which actually accelerates in the post-war era as new housing opportunities are made available in suburban uh, locations. And a few years later, the Interstate Highway Act makes it uh, more possible for people to, uh, to drive in and out of cities uh, quite quickly and, and, and make suburban living uh, even more uh, feasible. So the Urban Renewal Program was uh, an effort to prime the pump for the private sector to come back into cities and to reinvest. Um, the idea behind urban renewal is that there was a significant obstacle to uh, reinvestment in the cities, and that was the uh, existing physical stock. We had uh, cities were characterized by older, obsolete uh, buildings that had to be cleared, and there was a certain expense associated with that clearance and the idea was that the public housing, or rather the urban renewal program, would subsidize that clearance and provide the private sector with a kind of clean slate on the landscape. And then uh, reinvestment would occur and we would see economic activity reemerging in central cities uh, across the U.S. And so that was the model behind it. Um, uh, and that was why why the program was so focused on clearance, large-scale demolition, the the creation of, of pretty large parcels of land that um, would be available for um, almost a complete redefinition in purpose and in style in the 1950s and the 1960s. So that was the idea behind it. And public housing was tied to it because... Uh, for many people, part of the opposition to public housing was to make sure it would be limited in new areas of growth and investment. Uh, and so it was seen as, a, as an appropriate use, perhaps for these uh, older revitalizing areas of central cities, but um, not so appropriate in kind of what's called greenfield development or development of uh, previously undeveloped on the periphery of, of cities or in suburban areas. And then what was the actual reality of urban renewal and, and how did public housing fit into that as huge swaths of cities were, were, were remade in an attempt to, I guess, make them better competitors to the suburbs? Yeah, the reality was that urban renewal resulted in the in the demolition of uh, hundreds of thousands of, of units of low cost housing that were deemed uh, obsolete and not worthy of, uh, of of keeping around. It resulted in massive displacement of of people of color in in central cities across the United States. In fact, it was so associated 
with the displacement of, of blacks that um, James Baldwin uh, memorably called it the Negro Removal Program. And, and so you saw it being deployed in uh, neighborhoods that were primarily inhabited by very low-income people, but people of color as well. It ended up demolishing more housing than it built, and it ended up really generating a significant amount of political resistance after about 10 or 15 years from, from residents of these neighborhoods who saw the track record of urban renewal in other cities and realized that, that this was uh, endangering their living in the central cities and their ability to, uh, to remain in communities that they uh, valued. So, so that was the impact. And public housing, a lot of public housing units were constructed in urban renewal sites. This was seen as perhaps the most politically expedient way to get public housing uh, accepted in, in a lot of neighborhoods because uh, there were no existing neighbors left to oppose uh, the public housing that was being built. And did the public housing also become, in many cases, housing of last resort for those black people who had been displaced? Right. And so that this was happening exactly at that time when the racial profile of public housing was was changing and in many cities becoming more associated with African-Americans and who, it should be remembered, were continuing to face discrimination in the private housing market. And in fact, we're experiencing uh, even heightened discrimination uh, in the housing market and, and just did not have the range of choices that uh, even low-income whites um, had access to in the housing market. Yeah. I mean, there was both legally enforced forms of exclusion and related popular forms of, of violent white resistance to, to black people moving into their neighborhoods. Yeah, the, 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 the challenges faced by people of color in the housing market of, of American cities in the mid-20th century included politically determined kinds of uh, public policies that, that allowed for the use of racially restrictive deeds and even, in fact, encouraged the use of racially restrictive deeds and then there were, uh, there were economic forms of discrimination that were practiced by uh, private real estate operators and banks. And then there was a, a kind of popular uh, community-based form of discrimination that was practiced really at the uh, block level by primarily white residents who took it upon themselves to uh, reinforce and maintain the, uh, the the racial boundaries in American cities by oftentimes engaging in uh, violent and intimidating actions to uh, keep black families out of neighborhoods. Let's turn to the organized neglect of public housing in the decades leading up to its active destruction. But a key piece of context here is that the vast majority of public housing units were never distressed. You write, quote, this reality, applying as it does to so much public housing, is at odds with perceptions of the program fueled by popular press accounts of the worst public housing in our largest cities. Indeed, even in those cities and in those specific projects that have manifestly failed to provide decent and safe housing for its inhabitants, there are contradictory experiences 
and more complexity than suggested by the disaster narrative. How then did this narrative get constructed? How did public housing come to stand in for a racialized urban crisis more generally? And then what realities did that narrative obscure? Black communities in in American cities have been stigmatized really over the decades. And as public housing became identified with with black residents and as it became located and, and, and cited in the middle of black communities, then it began to uh, share those that, that stigma. And this was reinforced through popular media accounts of various social pathologies that were uh, thought to be uh, existing at uh, heightened levels inside of public housing complexes. This went hand in hand with concerns about the the, the, quote, the disintegration of the family within the African-American community. The whole business of explaining Black poverty in the United States as being the result of individual failings, of failings of the community, really anything that, um, that wasn't associated with describing the actions and the, and the and the processes of a system of white supremacy. Anything that sort of diverted our attention away from such a system and focused it on the individual failings of blacks and their communities is what was taking place during these uh, during these years. And and so this led then to a kind of popular impression of public housing communities across the country as as being lawless, as being places of immorality, um, as being places that are more or less hopeless um, from a standpoint of, uh, of ever becoming a kind of functioning community. And although this was Although this actually approached uh, uh, truth in some of the worst cases of public housing, what was problematic uh, was the misdiagnosis of the problem on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the application of that diagnosis to all public housing. The idea that the program as a whole was a failure because of the most uh, publicized failures within certain American cities. And, and, and what I tried to do when I uh, wrote the book is, is to acknowledge that there were significant problems with public housing in some cities that were where it was poorly managed, where it was underfunded, uh, where there was a, a, a whole range of, of problems associated with disinvestment, both in the private sector and in the public sector, in those communities. And that's a reality. What's not a reality is the diagnosis that this was an inherent part of the public housing program or that it in fact characterized uh, uh, even a majority of, of public housing units. And I think that's the important thing we need to um, think about, that in most places, at most times, uh, most public housing actually worked and served the functions that it was designed to serve. That point on underfunding is key. Federal funding for a long time was limited to capital construction costs, meaning that PHAs had to pay for maintenance and upkeep through tenant rents, which 
given who public housing is serving, is obviously a big problem. And in this effort to protect the private real estate industry from the get-go of public housing's creation and, and keep them from having to face the sort of government competition they would from a truly a truly expansive social housing program, there were really sharp limits on how much money could be spent on public housing construction per unit. Right. These these cost containment factors, which really took precedence in the 1950s, uh, really shaped the reality of, of public housing and led to led to site designs that emphasized high rises over low rise development that emphasized cutting corners in terms of construction techniques and in terms of materials used. And so one of the outcomes of of that obsession with cost containment at the front end is that a lot of public housing that was built in the 50s and the 60s was uh, pretty poorly designed and poorly constructed and and therefore uh, began to age uh, pretty quickly. And this is really different and distinct from the very first kind of generation of public housing built in the 1930s and, the, um, and, and into the uh, 40s, which was generally quite well designed, quite well constructed, and was built to last and, uh, and in fact, did last for um, 60, 70, 80 years. And that was even with cost controls intended politically by the opponents of public housing to make housing unattractive and unappealing, even still the early public housing was was built to last in a way that was not true of projects constructed in the 50s and 60s that's exactly right and uh, and the other side of the of the cost containment uh, that is the the incomes that are eligible for public housing that too was uh, of course a a constant element of of the public housing program and was as you described, an effort to make sure that public housing would not ever compete with uh, anything in the in, in the private uh, rental market. Yeah, I mean, as people's economic fortunes improve, let's say they they get a better job or they're in a job that wins a union and thus better wages, if their income goes over the limit, they are evicted from public housing. Yes, that's correct. They they lose their eligibility and are forced to move out. And so you have this uh, rather contrary and ironic outcome of people who are upwardly mobile uh, being forced to move out of public housing um, to make room for uh, for others. Yeah. The 1972 demolition of the Pruitt-Igo projects in St. Louis, which is well before the onset of mass demolition, that that was really key to cementing this pathologized view of public housing in the American imagination. How did Pruitt-Igo become such a politically consequential spectacle? And in what reality, again, did that spectacle obscure? The Pruitt-Igo was paradigmatic uh, in so many different ways. It exhibited all of the kinds of negative construction characteristics that were emphasized and incentivized by the uh, cost containment policies of public housing. So it was uh, entirely high-rise development. It wasn't particularly well-made uh, in the sense that there were that there were operational issues almost from the beginning uh, in Pruitt-Igo. The value put on reducing land costs um, led to a super concentration of units in a 
single neighborhood of, of St. Louis. And all of this was at odds with what was happening in the neighborhood uh, surrounding it. The pruitt Igo Towers looked nothing like the neighborhood that it was located in. It, if you look at some of the, the photographs, the aerial photographs of pruitt Igo before it was uh, torn down, it, it looks as if aliens could have just essentially uh, placed this uh, right in the middle of an American city um, for how different it was in its physical aspect and physical characteristics to the rest of the city. I just pulled it up. That is what it looks like from the air. <laughs> Doesn't it? Yeah. Um, it's just, it's remarkable, both in its scale um, and in the way uh, in the way that it, it looks and compares to the rest of the city. And then uh, I guess we, what's also important, though, is that the, the community in which it was placed was in the in the process of significant economic decline. And so all of these characteristics led to the decline of Pruitt-Igo itself as the, uh, as the building started to show problems uh, having to do with, uh, with water, uh, leakage, uh, various other um, construction issues. The neighborhood itself uh, had no economic opportunities for the residents. Uh, it became and and the neighborhood surrounding it became uh, identified with significant economic decline uh, and social problems, and all of these things led to an accelerated uh, decline and uh, and frankly pretty alarming vacancy rates fairly early on. And uh, it was decided then after um, only a few years of operation that. Uh, that Pruitt-Igo was best dealt with by large-scale demolition. And that demolition was indeed a national spectacle. It was indeed and, uh, and became kind of the, uh, the, the paradigmatic example for cities across the country. That the, the concern was that uh, the housing in your city would uh, end up being as dysfunctional as Pruitt-Igo was and uh, necessitating a response as uh, dramatic as uh, as total demolition even though even though during these years the official position of HUD the US Department of Housing and Urban Development was that we should protect and retain as much public housing as as possible um, so that gives you a, a a sense of the level of dysfunction that actually existed in in Pruitt-Igo and the and the problematic nature of the construction that had taken place. Yet that begins to change not that long after in the 1980s in a more kind of unofficial shift of policy and at a time when we see conditions in many big city projects deteriorating and more PHAs asking HUD for permission to demolish units and HUD in turn granting many of those requests. And and you write that a big part of this was a project of what was called de facto demolition, whereby PHAs would allow vacancy rates to rise while disinvesting in repair, accelerating the entire deterioration of a project, which would then prompt the PHA to ask HUD for permission to get rid of it. It was, you write, a mostly, quote, unknown and unannounced policy shift. So already by the end of the 1980s, the thousands of units of public housing that were that were still being built every year were roughly matched by the number that were getting demolished. 
why did this unofficial project of de facto demolition take off when it did, and and how did it operate? Yeah, this is an important uh, moment in the in the history of of public housing. Uh, through the 1970s, uh, even with the problems that were associated with many public housing developments around the country, there was still an effort to expand the public housing stock. And it proceeded in fits and starts and never actually met uh, projected needs. But, but nevertheless, the program was uh, expanding. And there was a presumption on the part of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development that as much public housing as possible should be protected and, and should continue operating. At the same time, the, the negative perceptions of public housing were expanding to the point that uh, many local housing authorities wanted uh, to take the, the, the most advanced step in terms of dealing what they felt was dealing with the, the problems of public housing and, and moved uh, towards demolition. But Section 18 of the, of the Housing Act that created public housing required local housing authorities to get the approval of HUD. They had to show HUD, they had to prove to HUD that the units that they wanted to demolish were in fact obsolete and that they had consulted with tenants about it and that this was the conclusion they had come to. And this was uh, this, this could be a fairly high bar for uh, for many housing authorities uh, to show and to demonstrate the obsolescence of these units because it wasn't really entirely obvious in all cases that they were obsolete. So the the process of de facto demolition is one in which the housing authorities would simply allow the deterioration of their public housing stock, and they would do so by increasing vacancies. Sometimes they did this by, by simply not filling units that had become vacant. And then as those units remained uh, unoccupied uh, and fewer and fewer units on the site were uh, occupied, then all sorts of neighborhood problems would start to creep in and you would see vandalism of units and this would take more units off the, uh, off the property uh, rolls, etc. And so it generated a kind of downward cycle of maintenance and repair. And of course, when you limit occupancy of the units, you are also voluntarily limiting your own income as a housing authority, right? So you had fewer resources with which to maintain those properties. In fact, maintaining those properties was not your objective. But the, the ultimate objective was to convince HUD that these units were in fact obsolete and needed to be de uh, demolished. And so this was a way of doing that, allowing the decline to reach a point where HUD had to agree that, um, that something uh, as major as demolition had to occur. And that was the, the basis of de facto demolition. Uh, just imagine what that's like to suddenly have over a, a year or two, half the apartments in your complex suddenly become empty. It's an extraordinarily different environment to, to live in. Why was that the objective of a growing number of PHAs? Why, why were they pursuing de facto demolition when they did? They were doing so because they had identified these as their most problematic properties. 
the ones requiring the the most improvement. And Congress had never provided as many resources as was necessary for the upkeep uh, and the improvement of projects that were, you know, beginning to age out. They were they were beginning to be 30, 40 years old. And as I said earlier, sort of as a result of, of suboptimal kinds of construction techniques and materials, they were aging more rapidly. And so a lot of housing authorities looked at demolition as the as their best option in an environment where it was very difficult for them to raise the funds necessary to uh, turn around problematic properties and they may have they may have also come to the conclusion that they could never operate a functioning uh, a well functioning public housing development at that location um, and so would pursue uh, demolition this begins to turn around in the 1990s or in the 1980s, right? As more of these housing authorities realize that demolition is a, is a real option. Uh, I, I can't overstate how unusual pruitt Igo had been in 1972. As, as important as it is, as an example, it was still a significant exception to how public housing was dealt with. And so it did take this kind of informal, small-scale turnaround in the 1980s to to generate the idea that, well, maybe demolition is uh, the best course of, of action. PHAs, as, as you say, did face major economic issues in the 1980s, but were they also perhaps coming around to the conclusion that they didn't want so many people like public housing residents in, in their cities? Did that play a role? Public housing authorities, uh, I mean, that that's their mission right. is to is to serve this population. And the commitment to that mission, I guess, varies from place to place, as does the quality of public housing administration and, and management, right? And so in some cities, public housing authorities are a little bit more independent and a little bit more capable than they are in other cities. And I would agree that in the 1980s, uh, you see a lot of local officials coming to the conclusion that these large communities of public housing are not assets uh, for their city. And you see a growing acceptance of the idea of getting rid of them altogether. Let's turn to the core of your book, Hope Six, which was the centerpiece of Bill Clinton's public housing program, and also, in many ways, the end of public housing as we knew it. How did Hope Six come about, and how did demolition become its focus in what you write was a remarkably sudden shift in official policy? Because it had only been a few years prior that the National Commission on Severely Distressed Public Housing, created by Congress in 1989, had found that just 6% of the nationwide public housing stock was severely distressed. And you write that the commission, quote, clearly envisioned a program of rehabilitation and renovation, one that did not diminish the size of the public housing stock nationwide. What happened? How did the program of de facto demolition of the 1980s that we were discussing become this enthusiastic and explicit program of demolition? in the 1990s. 
That happened in a number of different ways. The first has to do with what the the political and economic environment was like in the uh, in the early 1990s. Um, American cities are still sort of reeling from a crack cocaine uh, epidemic, which I think really generated something akin to a moral panic in a lot of American cities about uh, escalation of crime, uh, about the dysfunctionality of, of neighborhoods of concentrated poverty, really an idea that American cities, as we knew them, were, were kind of being lost. Uh, and there was this other America that was being generated in these neighborhoods of, of high crime, high poverty, drug use, drug abuse, uh, et cetera. And so this moral panic kind of dominated uh, the day, right? Every, every new uh, iteration of Congress tried to outdo the previous session in terms of being tough on crime. And you saw the Clinton administration's concern about reinventing welfare, about ending uh, as, as we know it, et cetera. And so this was a, a period of time when the prevailing notions of American cities were, were notions that uh, of a deeply problematic nature, that, um, that our, our cities were facing, were facing challenges that were simply qualitatively, quantitatively different than uh, had ever been faced before. And, and this developed at the same time that the National Commission was writing its report. And although the commission, which included housing officials, it included uh, public housing uh, residents, the commission comes out with a, with a pretty, pretty moderate piece of analysis and a set of recommendations for a kind of rehab-based program of modernization, one that would also include a lot of social supports for residents. Uh, the commission explicitly says that the, the solution to public housing should not focus on the physical conditions and the physical remaking of public housing, but that this is what in fact exactly happens. And the commission uh, issues its report in 1992. And within months, Congress has created a demonstration program Called the Urban Redevelopment Demonstration Program. This is the this is what becomes Hope Six in a, in another year or so, and it's a program that is primarily aimed at rehabilitation of the most severely distressed public housing. So it 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 hews pretty closely to the recommendations of the of the commission, but keeping in mind that background of moral panic. Um, and then you have a new secretary of HUD, uh, the former mayor of the city of San Antonio, Henry Cisneros, who, who begins a, a tour of public housing across the country. And I guess, as most HUD directors do, he wasn't taking a tour of the well-functioning public housing. He was, in fact, taking a tour of the worst of public housing. And he begins to become convinced that the kind of moderate approach called for by the commission and in fact embodied in that uh, first piece of legislation 
he begins to think that maybe that's inadequate to the task, that the problems that he witnessed in cities like Baltimore and Chicago are just too great to be dealt with um, by a moderate uh, form of, uh, of rehabilitation. Then you have the midterm elections of, of 1994 and the, the, the rise of Newt Gingrich and the Republican Party's contract for America, which includes significant changes for the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, right? The, 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 the designs that the Republican uh, majority in Congress had on HUD were, uh, were that it, it might even be eliminated, right? And so Cisneros sees himself uh, at, the, at the head of an agency that is now endangered. And, uh, and so he puts his staff through this exercise and creates what is called the HUD Reinvention Blueprint, which also comes out uh, in 1994 as a result of these uh, midterm elections. And the Reinvention Blueprint uh, is, a, is a fairly radical uh, vision for HUD moving forward. And it includes a radical kind of redefinition of public housing, um, taking it away from the form that it had uh, taken in the first 40 years of its life and, uh, and thinking about the privatization of public housing, about the, the switch of, of public housing subsidies into uh, tenant-based forms of, uh, of housing subsidies that... Uh, Vouchers. Vouchers, exactly, that, ha- that, that families can take with them uh, and use throughout the housing uh, market, etc., and so there, there, there's this notion that the big steps are needed, big changes are needed in the way HUD uh, does business and public housing being chief among the problems facing HUD, then all of these start to be applied to, uh, to, to public housing. In 1995, HUD begins to emphasize uh, the leveraging of private investment in all of the proposals that it's getting from uh, for Hope 6 uh, projects across the country. Uh, and this is a, a direct signal and a clear signal to local housing authorities that HUD wants to see significant neighborhood change taking place in any kind of uh, Hope 6 uh, site. And so you had that happening. I guess the other things that you uh, that that are important here is that the 1990s are uh, were the first decade where we started to see some central cities actually rebounding in terms of of population and economic activity. So there was this kind of nascent market for private sector investment in a in a lot of of central cities, and most of it in the form of kind of expanding downtowns and taking advantage of the amenities that exist in downtown areas in most American cities. And and what stood in the way in a lot of cities were older public housing developments. And they, they began to be seen as an obstacle to central city uh, revitalization at this time. So all of these factors sort of converge around 1994, 95, 
and they contribute to a fairly quick change in the approach of the HOPE 6 program from being kind of a moderate or rehab approach to being one that emphasizes full-scale demolition, significant leveraging of private sector investment, uh, the, the replacement of monolithic public housing developments with mixed income developments that will attract market rate families and market rate households. Uh, it's an entirely new paradigm. And it, it, was, it was wholeheartedly adopted by Cisneros and HUD at that time. And really critical to facilitating this all is the elimination of a rule that every public housing unit destroyed has to be replaced by a newly built unit because because that's what allows Hope 6 to achieve a net reduction in the number of public housing units. Otherwise, according to that rule, even if they redeveloped everything, they would have to end up with the same number of units, which is not what happened. That's exactly right. And that one-for-one replacement rule, which had been in, in, in place for a couple of decades, was seen as a major obstacle to the kind of redevelopment that uh, most officials wanted to see. And they didn't want to replace public housing one for one. They wanted a smaller uh, profile for public housing. They wanted to integrate it with market rate units and other forms of uh, of less subsidized housing. Uh, And that was all problematic if that one-for-one replacement rule was in place. And so, yes, the elimination of that became a very important step in the transition of uh, HOPE 6 into a demolition-first program. You write, quote, The evolution of HOPE 6 in the direction of demolition was the result of the emergence of the mixed-income model and the belief among HUD officials that the design of older public housing was one of the core reasons for its decline. There, there are two key things there I want to unpack, I think. One is about the concentration of poverty and its deconcentration, and then another is about architecture and design. And let's start with the concentration and deconcentration of poverty. So federal, state, and local governments had, of course, for decades, helped ensure that black people were segregated into poor and overwhelmingly black neighborhoods. And, of course, the private sector did so as well, hand-in-hand hand with the government. How, by the 1990s, had deconcentrating that poverty emerged as a priority for public housing officials and, and for politicians more generally? What sort of assumptions about poor people and poor black people in particular did that poverty deconcentration agenda entail? And then what was the envisioned solution? Because notably, there wasn't much poverty deconcentration. Most, most displaced people moved to other poor and black neighborhoods. Yeah. So again, I, I, I think it's important for us to uh, think about the context of, the, of that period. Uh, coming out of the, the 1980s with the, the crack cocaine epidemic and the moral panic associated with rising crime, you also uh, saw uh, social scientists begin to study urban poverty in ways that they hadn't before. And there was the publication of a very influential book by the sociologist William Julius Wilson, who at that time was at the University of Chicago and studying Chicago. Um, and uh, and he argued uh, that... The truly disadvantaged. 
Right. Yes. Um, and in that book, he highlights the problem of concentrated poverty, not just poverty, the extent of poverty, but the fact that it is spatially concentrated and that it reaches such an extensive uh, proportion of the population. And his diagnosis of concentrations of poverty was quickly followed up by other social scientists who began to to delve more deeply into that uh, concept. And, and you had some working sort of on, on quantitative empirical studies. You had others doing qualitative work, uh, interview-based work with, uh, with people living in those communities. And the emerging understanding of uh, American urban poverty at that time was that in those communities where more than about 40% of the population uh, was below the poverty level, that the social problems that resulted were, were significantly different. It was a nonlinear increase in the amount of uh, social pathologies uh, in those types of neighborhoods. So there was something about that threshold. There was something about a concentration effect at that level. And so deconcentration, of course, became the, the kind of uh, byword um, for, uh, for officials and for social scientists. The other thing that's important about this is that this diagnosis of intergenerational poverty uh, is one that doesn't directly blame the victim, right? This isn't about the individual pathologies of, uh, of poor people. It's not identifying the problem in their behavior or their morals or lack thereof. It's not identifying the problem in terms of uh, social dysfunction. These were all theories of poverty that had dominated uh, American policymaking for uh, the the previous 10, 15 years. And they were they were propagated by conservative social scientists who were identifying the defects of poor people themselves as the problem uh, of poverty. And, and so this notion of spatial concentration was uh, immediately attractive to more progressive social scientists and, and liberal policymakers because it was a response to the kind of blaming the victim version of, uh, of poverty that had been propagated by more conservative uh, analysts. And you saw a lot of liberal uh, social scientists and policy analysts taking up this notion of concentration of poverty and uh, because uh, it, it appealed to their to, to their views of uh, of poverty and and so the res- so the the policy response then if the problem is a concentration of, po- of poverty the obvious policy response would be the deconcentration of that poverty and public housing complexes in central cities were kind of ground zero for this type of concentration of poverty public housing complexes were seen as concentrating poverty both directly and indirectly. It would directly concentrate poverty because you had to be poor to be in public housing, right? That was the rule. And But it indirectly concentrated poverty because the conditions in those complexes were so bad that anyone living around them in the private market 
who had any choices at all in the housing market would would flee those neighborhoods and move elsewhere, leaving only those uh, with the fewest resources. So, the, so public housing was seen as having this direct and indirect impact on concentrating poverty. And, and so this social science kind of policy idea merged perfectly with the kind of hope six approach uh, and led to then this idea that we could significantly deconcentrate poverty if we just tore these units down gave people the means to move elsewhere and then rebuilt, but rebuilt at a, uh, at a lower density and with fewer public housing units that were interspersed with uh, market rate units and other units so that we can achieve this kind of uh, critical deconcentration. And, and conveniently for New Democrats, this wasn't blaming the increasingly neoliberalized American capitalism, the the problem could be solved by moving people around. That's right. And as you write, quote, one of the most intrusive forms of state power that can be directed against citizens, that is, their forced relocation followed by the demolition of their homes, is presented as the opposite. Right. It's the solution to their problems. They, they It was presented to them as a means of providing them with choice in the uh, in the housing market, which always struck me as it's 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 the kind of choice that a that a, a mugger gives you um, when when uh, when uh, when approaching you with his gun, right? You have a choice to reinvest your money in a in a slightly different way. Yeah, and there's something about the whole theory here that seems premised on really missing the role, or really simplifying, oversimplifying the role played by segregation in mid-century American capitalism. So that if you just sort of say, "Okay, you can live wherever you want now." That I don't know. Maybe it, it seems like it's premised on the very same notions that these kind of liberal notions that it that exclusion from the mid-century bounty were the core of the problem, rather than kind of understanding the constitutive role played by those kind of exclusions and subordinations. Right. That's exa- that. That's a great way of putting it because it was it pictures poverty as an exception to an otherwise sort of functioning system, right? And that if we can simply get people to better and more supportive environments, environments that came to be known as opportunity neighborhoods, places where they would have better opportunities for uh, education, for jobs, uh, et cetera, that if we could just get people to those, uh, to those communities then we could uh, we could have a fighting chance against this intergenerational poverty. It's a look. I, I you know from the from from the hindsight of uh, of forty years, it's easier to dismiss now than it was then. Um, in the sense that there was a there, there was a significant amount of social science research uh, showing those concentration effects. Right that after that after you get above that threshold of poverty. These social pathologies accelerated uh, significantly. There was also, you know, and there still is social science evidence to uh, to the effect that uh, students of color uh, do better in uh, more integrated schools, and and we know that crime rates are less problematic in in wider communities. We know that housing values appreciate more in wider communities. And 
I think it's true. This is a, that it turns out to be a, a rather simplistic uh, view of the world that, that suggests that all the forms of discrimination that produce segregation in the first place would somehow disappear if we could just rearrange people uh, in space. But uh, that was the prevailing uh, notion and, and the prevailing concerns about those quote unquote dysfunctional uh, concentrations of poverty were so great that there was widespread agreement that just eliminating them without doing anything else would, uh, would serve people and would serve communities well. Yeah. I mean, as if the so-called kind of mainstream system that they're trying to include poor people into and thus kind of somehow render them non-poor isn't what's creating the poverty in the first place, which is why you, I imagine you can find social scientific evidence for some of this working in kind of small cohort cases on, on the margin, but it can't fundamentally work on a systemic or structural level because that would require actually changing the system, not including the people whose subordination the system requires. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think that the, when I write about uh, New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina, so it's just a great example of it. here's a here's a major disaster that befalls not only the city of New Orleans but most concentratedly those low income uh, communities right and uh, and and then you have pundits you have David Brooks saying well you know there's a silver lining here and the silver lining is we get to rearrange poor people now that they don't have to go back to those old communities and back to that old way of living. And uh, and when it came to public housing, they weren't allowed to go back. Right? Um, those 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 communities were fenced off after Katrina, and those populations were simply not allowed to uh, to ever re-inhabit those units. It's it's remarkable. Yeah, after Katrina hit in August two thousand five, the city just closed down six large projects. Residents were not only barred from reoccupying their units; they couldn't even retrieve their belongings in most cases, and the projects did not sustain serious damage. It was purely seizing an opportunity to... Yeah, that's the un- yeah, that's the unforgivable part to me, is that this was just utterly pretense, right? Because those buildings, some of those buildings, had survived really quite well and were still quite functional. This was taking um, that disaster and, uh, and leveraging it to achieve large-scale displacement of uh, very low-income people of color. And remarkably in New Orleans is that racism was the subtext in so many cities' Hope Six experience, but it just became the text in New Orleans with with uh, this Republican congressman from Baton Rouge, Richard Baker, saying, quote, we finally cleaned up public housing. We couldn't do it, but God did. Bush's HUD secretary, Alfonso Jackson, said New Orleans will not, quote, be as black as it was for a long time, if ever again. <laughs> I don't know what to add to that. Yeah. Hi, this is Olufemi Otaiwo, and you're listening to The Dig. You can support the podcast at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is revolutionary social democracy, working class politics across the Russian empire, 1882 to 1917 by Eric Blanc. 
Through extensive archival research in eight different languages, revolutionary social democracy introduces readers to the politics and practices of socialists in Tsarist Russia's imperial borderlands. These parties fought for democracy and workers' power across the entire span of the Russian Empire, from the factories of Warsaw to the oil fields of Baku to the autonomous parliament of Finland. Eric Blanc's incisive study of these parties shows that the Russian Revolution was far less Russian than is commonly assumed. The implications of this discovery challenge long-held assumptions about the dynamics of revolutionary change under both autocratic and democratic conditions. Revolutionary Social Democracy by Eric Blanc, out now from Haymarket Books and available on haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. You note that creating mixed-income communities or improving the lived environment of projects by no means hypothetically has to mean the destruction of public housing. Quote, Though advocates of redevelopment position it as the solution to ongoing problems of public housing and as a means of creating stable and decent living environments for the poor, there have been no attempts to use this model to expand the public housing stock. In fact, the new model is employed almost exclusively to reduce the scope of the program and the number of subsidized, very low-income units. What If redevelopment and mixed-income projects don't have to be inherently used to reduce the stock of public housing. And, you know, I don't think that they do because, you know, forms of redevelopment and mixed income would be precisely what is required to make actual social housing, Vienna-style social housing, let's say, a reality in the United States. What does it reveal that that's almost exclusively how it has been used or exclusively how it's been used? Right. I think what it reveals is that the the rationales that are given and that were given for Hope Six, the idea that this was about the improvement of lives for uh, the residents of public housing, I think what it reveals is that was always a ruse, that, that in fact, the, the, the major objective of Hope Six in public housing redevelopment was the physical remaking of large swaths of central cities in the United States, of clearing the way for private sector uh, reinvestment, uh, a new round of profit-taking in neighborhoods that were in the path of redevelopment, uh, and in fact, where the only obstacle to that redevelopment was the uh, public housing complex that was on site. So, you know, you get, you get people adamantly defending Hope 6 by saying, look, this is just the new way of doing public housing. We have to do it in a mixed income type of uh, way. We, uh, it's better for residents. And we've just learned our lessons, right? We're not going to use those old modernist kinds of designs. We're going to use new urbanism. We're going to give everybody a porch. We're going to increase the human capital, the social capital in these communities. This is the way to build public housing. And that's what you heard. That's what you heard. But if that were really the way <laughs> to build public housing, why didn't we build more public housing that way, 
right? So my point in the book was that we only use this model to effectuate a retrenchment in the program. This was a way of putting lipstick on that particular pig um, by, by convincing ourselves, perhaps, or others uh, that uh, we had discovered a new and better way of, of building public housing. And that may or may not be, but uh, it strikes me as disingenuous when we only use it uh, in, the, in the context of reducing the housing stock. Right. And these a lot of major public housing projects in big cities were conveniently standing in the way of gentrification of strategically located neighborhoods. Chicago's Cabrini Green, Houston's Allen Parkway Village, New Orleans's St. Thomas, Philly's Martin Luther King. All of these projects that are standing in the way of gentrification. And when those obstacles are removed, that gentrification can really tear through. So not only are deeply affordable public housing units eliminated, but the rents in the surrounding neighborhoods can go through the roof, further reducing affordability. Right, right. And that's what uh, that's what uh, you find when you look at the uh, at the data, right, is that in many of these cities, there are these kinds of nascent real estate markets ready to uh, ready to react when that public housing is demolished. Uh, and in fact, sometimes react even on the mere announcement of uh, the pending demolition of a uh, public housing project. Uh, so that was, in fact, the case in a, in a, lot, of, uh, in a lot of cities. And, and I found uh, in my analysis that that actually explains which cities uh, were the most aggressive in demolishing public housing during the 1990s. This was, this was about clearing uh, the way for, uh, for gentrification and, and private sector uh, investment in neighborhoods, generally near downtowns, um, but uh, almost always uh, in the path of, uh, of redevelopment. Chicago is a, is a really exemplary case here. HUD actually took over the Chicago Housing Authority in 1995. And then in 2000, shortly after CHA regained its independence, it submitted its plan for transformation to HUD, which would lead to the massive destruction of public housing in the city. I lived in Chicago the summer of 2001 and I think saw Cabrini Green and whatnot in its very final years of existence. You write, quote, the PFT in Chicago was not merely an effort to remake public housing. It became the city's major urban redevelopment initiative of the new decade and the largest public works program in the city's history. Where where did the PFT fit into this broader plan to remake Chicago? Who was the city being transformed for and, and why? Well, the, the, the PFT is, is probably the best example of reclaiming urban territory for, for new investment, for the private sector, and for wealthier uh, residents. Right? So uh, the Chicago is, is, had the second most public housing units of any city in the United States. Only New York City had more. And so, you know, Chicago had this vast uh, network of, of public housing projects all around downtown, northwest and south, right, of downtown. 
and uh, and the city felt uh, constrained by this kind of necklace of of public housing developments. Uh, and during the 1990s and the early 2000s, when when investment was returning to central cities, uh, Chicago wanted to make sure that that happened there as well. And you had uh, Richard Daly uh, Jr. or the second or whatever he is uh, was the uh, was the mayor at the time, and you had uh, the, the MacArthur Foundation working very closely with Daly at this time to really reimagine uh, Chicago without uh, that public housing stock that almost all observers felt uh, was a an albatross uh, around the city's neck. And so uh, you saw the transformation uh, at a scale in Chicago that was uh, that was not matched anywhere else in the uh, in the country. And you saw massive, foundation investment and, and private sector uh, investment and real ambition to uh, to remake the city of Chicago. And, uh, and that's what made it the, the, the city's largest uh, public works uh, development, pu- public works project in its history. Um, it was uh, it was the most ambitious one of its uh, of its sort in the in the country. Revealingly, you note that Chicago agencies would cooperate citywide, dedicating huge amounts of attention, labor, resources in this effort to destroy public housing, the sort of things they could never seem to muster to just simply improve public housing and serve public housing residents. Yeah, right. And this and, you know, these directives came from the top, right? This was this was Daly's major objective uh, during this period of time. And uh, and so the coordination of different uh, city agencies to accomplish this and to make this work um, was a was a great priority of his administration. Let's turn to the politics of public housing architecture and design. What sort of buildings were built as public housing projects over the decades? How were prevailing designs shaped by everything from changing ideological norms to to federally imposed cost constraints? And more specifically, how did modernism go from being so in fashion to being blamed for nurturing social pathology with new urbanism presented as the solution? And then what sort of assumptions did each moment entail about the role played by the built environment in shaping the lives and even subjectivities of its inhabitants. Yeah, there's a lot in that. Uh, um, and so, we, you know, we have to begin uh, again with how, with how public housing was, uh, was imagined in its, in its early years. I think the first round of, of public housing construction, uh, as I noted before, was generally uh, pretty remarkable and in, in, its, in, its, um, in its quality. It was, uh, I think, what has come to be known as uh, New Deal uh, kinds of architecture and design, and not modernist uh, per se, but that modernism began seeping into design considerations in public housing at the same time that cost containment became the uh, the overriding principle of uh, of design and construction. There was a there was an idea that uh, simple modernist kinds of of developments that lacked any kind of 
architectural flourish or uh, any kinds of um, individuality to to units, that these developments reflected the kinds of of working class ambitions uh, of the housing itself, right? That this was housing for uh, the working person and uh, and would therefore not be uh, subject to the kinds of architectural flourishes and excesses that we have seen in previous uh, in previous design um, uh, periods, right? And so so there was that element. The other element was that, public housing was being placed in urban renewal sites in in parts of the city uh, that had been experiencing significant decline. And so to set public housing apart from what was regarded as its negative uh, influences that surrounded it, Modernism was seen as a uh, as a way of doing that, as as a way of sort of making it visually distinct from the rest of the uh, neighborhood surrounding it, in in hopes that it would survive uh, and repel the uh, the negative influences from those poor communities in which it was placed. And so you had, um, and then finally, uh, I guess those, as I said, those cost containment elements of construction really lent themselves quite well to a modernist kind of architectural design that uh, that did not include any kind of uh, individuality, individuality for units, any kind of um, flourish at all, right? These were box cutter kinds of, uh, of designs and uh, and that fit uh, that fit cost containment quite well. So for all these reasons, there was a lot of this stuff built in the in the late '40s, '50s, and the '60s, but they didn't age very well. And as I mentioned, part of that had to do with construction materials and techniques, but part of it had to do with with design as well. Uh, the the modernist kinds of buildings started to look uh, pretty alien to the neighborhoods that uh, they were located in. Modernism in general did not take off uh, very well as an architectural model in American cities. And so the the very fact that all public housing was modernist or most of it was modernist contributed to the fact that it did stand out visually and that it became stigmatized visually as well. I mean, you could, in most American cities in the 1960s, you could drive around and you could, you could spot a, a public housing development, a high rise from blocks away, and you just knew it was public housing because of the way it looked and the way it was uh, distinctive um, for those uh, modernist kinds of characteristics. Uh, over time, then, the, the design became problematized by those who who were trying to figure out what was wrong with these communities. And they felt that the lack of individual space uh, that you saw in modernist developments, that that uh, in itself led to an under-maintenance by the residents. That if if space didn't belong to, uh, to any individual, then um, it belonged to no one and no one took care of it. Uh, and it would uh, it would be easily sort of co-opted by outside forces, gangs, and and the like, who would take over common spaces, uh, et cetera. 
Um, the lack of what was called defensible space uh, was also blamed as part of the modernist uh, argument. And then finally, there was, there was just a sense that these were visually alienating, that the, the, the very lack of ornamentation really seemed to visually reflect a lack of care and a, and a, and a lack of interest on the part of those who put it there and on the part of those who live there. And all of these things were, were thought to um, contribute to the, uh, to the negative outcomes that were associated with a lot of these developments. And then, and then in, instead, you have the emergence of this new architectural and design theory called new urbanism, which uh, really <laughs> kind of uh, advocated the complete opposite of, uh, of modernism, right? This was uh, an idea that emphasized bringing people uh, back to a human scale, bringing buildings rather back to a, a human scale to bring the buildings uh, closer to the, to the sidewalk, closer to the uh, uh, edge of the, uh, of the lot and the parcel. It, it, it called for the elimination of these public spaces, these no man's lands that, uh, that so dominated uh, modernist uh, public housing. And, and so you had the, and, and, and in fact, the new urbanist design theory was adopted wholeheartedly by HUD and, and Cisneros was a, a great believer in new urbanism and felt that these design approaches could be a, an important part of the uh, solution to uh, public housing problems. To what extent was looking to architectural explanations and solutions missing the point and in doing so, perhaps exactly why it was so appealing? Well, um, it misses the point because there is a, any number of well-functioning, high-income, modernist apartment buildings in uh, every city in the United States, right? Um, so it, it couldn't have been the buildings themselves. It couldn't have been the design. Uh, what, in fact, was uh, the problem uh, was the uh, disinvestment, was the underinvestment, was the, the poor management, um, and various other uh, elements that policymakers just didn't want to face. Um, and so to be able to tear down a modernist public housing high rise and to replace it with a low rise uh, new urbanist community was, uh, was seen as, uh, as easier and seen as more concrete evidence of change and positive change than to busy oneself with uh, questions of better management and better uh, investment in the families and in the buildings themselves. It's also hard for me to believe that new urbanism is inherently a handmaiden to neoliberalism. Why, why then was and is that so often the case? Why did it work so well at that time and arguably continues to do so to facilitate the privatization and destruction of public housing? You know, that's a really good question that I'm not sure I do have the answer for. I, you know, the timing is important that new urbanism emerges at the same time that we, that, that also emerges this compulsion to privatize public housing and to really remake it. And so in some respects, there's just the opportunity uh, component of it, right? It was the new and handy uh, architectural theory 
The fact that uh, it, it probably overstates the impact of design is becoming more, I think, apparent with uh, with the passage of, of years. But um, I think that it just contributed to this notion of a complete break with the past, not just the way we finance it and operate it, not just with who lives there, but in the very way that it looks and, uh, and integrates uh, with the rest of the community. Yeah. I mean, walkable neighborhoods should be a good thing. It's just under a kind of neoliberal capitalist paradigm. Public housing residents are not the ones walking in those neighborhoods. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. 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 It does. It does leave all those other uh, details uh, unresolved. Yeah. So I not to be too sympathetic to these city leaders, but are they in some sense just responding to a an intensifying logic and set of interests that are encouraged and even imposed upon cities by the geographic and political organization of American capitalism, especially as it's reorganized by post-war suburbanization, the way the way that capital mobility alongside school and housing segregation in between municipalities with separate tax bases and separate school systems. Was this development model catering to the well-to-do overdetermined by that historical context? That's a longstanding question. I think uh, political scientists, sociologists have considered that and agreed in various degrees uh, for decades, right? That there is this kind of development uh, mantra that that local officials have to uh, have to adopt, uh, that there is a set of policies that they are simply forced into following because of the fiscal constraints that they are faced with and the uh, model of mobile capitalism that uh, that operates. Um, so I think that that's, that's true. I don't think that we can dismiss it out of hand. Um, but I do think that there are examples of uh, of when this logic does not uh, drive all types of uh, of local development um, policymaking, when this kind of logic does not drive policymaking uh, even more generally in 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 cities. So, uh, I think we can we can agree that there is that there is importance to this overriding logic, but I don't think it's but to regard it as as completely determinative, I think, really underestimates the degree to which local communities do have agency in determining uh, what cities can look like. I think lets local officials off the hook a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, capital mobility means that there are serious challenges to creating social democracy in one city, but it doesn't make it impossible and it doesn't foreclose or it doesn't impose a certain kind of bleakly neoliberal outcome on any given city. That's correct. And and I would think in the case of, in this specific case of public housing redevelopment, it does not necessitate the type of solution that, uh, that Hope 6 embodies. One thing that we haven't touched on yet that's important to highlight is that there was a major carceral component to the neoliberalization of public housing policy. Clinton imposed these new tenant screening policies, work requirements, and a draconian crackdown on criminal convictions, a one-strike-and-you're-out rule that meant an entire family 
was evicted, could be evicted, if a single member was convicted of a crime. You touched on this a little bit at the top of the interview, but where where did public housing politics fit into this broader politics of punishment that pervaded the Clinton agenda from the war on crime and immigrants to to welfare reform? And what did that carceral aspect reveal about the true ambitions of Hope Six? Well, I think given the problematic uh, stigmatization of public housing communities and the residents who uh, lived in them, I think it's quite clear that public housing becomes a, a, a very natural place to play out these, these more carceral aspects of, of neoliberalism, right? If, we've, if we're going to begin cracking down in the most uh, extreme ways on the, on the crime and the drug abuse that is supposedly rampant uh, in, in American cities, the place to start would be, uh, would be ground zero for all of this, and that would be uh, the major public housing uh, complexes. I think that, that that's really quite clear, that the, the negative, this discourse of disaster um, makes public housing the clear place to, uh, to begin this kind of crackdown and to, uh, and to apply it most, uh, most severely. So I, I think there's that to it. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's the one strike and you're out. It's also the creation of, of, uh, of zones uh, where federal policies apply in terms of punishment uh, as opposed to local policies, right? So you can get arrested for the same, the same offense uh, in public housing uh, as you would uh, across the street. But because it's public housing, you are subject to much more stringent federal um, guidelines for sentencing, and and so that's part of the uh, of this dynamic as well. And what it reveals about the uh, about the true intentions of of hope 6 is i think a great deal and it it reveals uh that that it wasn't truly about the uh the well-being of uh of residents i think that the response on the part of policymakers is is that a lot of public housing residents were in favor of some of these more draconian anti-crime measures and uh, and that uh, in fact is uh, in part true, right? But that's a, a testament to the poor conditions that uh, existed in those communities. That some people were willing to to forfeit some of their uh, civil liberties uh, for the idea that they might end up living in a more in a, in a safer environment. And that that only speaks to the level uh, to the level of neglect that uh, many of these communities had uh, had endured over time. Yeah, meaningfully addressing or ameliorating the root causes of these problems are not really, is, is never really an option that's put on the table. It's not on the table, right. And there's also a real tension here between making public housing residents the, the primary victims who these policies are intended to save and making them out to be the principal threats and perpetrators. There's a tension, there seems to be like a tension there. There is, there is. Unsurprisingly, there there was tenant resistance to Hope Six, but you write, quote, what is perhaps more remarkable than the demonstrations against housing demolition is the fact that they do not occur more frequently. Why did tenants so often acquiesce to or even support the destruction of their homes? Was it just as we were sort of discussing just now about crime that the options presented to them were the status quo, 
versus the possibility, however remote, that they might return to improved and redeveloped projects. Yeah, I think that this lack of resistance is important and it's important to understand. And I think that in, uh, I think the primary reason for it is that it was a manipulated outcome. Um, so if we, if we think back to de facto demolition, uh, we, we see a process whereby uh, units or projects are, are slowly depopulated over time. And when the decision is made to finally tear them down and to perhaps pursue a, a Hope 6 grant to do so, there are very few tenants around anymore. And those who are around have been enduring a, an environment where, uh, of, of massive you know, vacancies, um, where, the, where the environment is not safe and they understand it to, uh, to be unsafe. And so there just isn't the, the will or the critical mass of, of tenants to oppose uh, a demolition. It just becomes a little bit more palatable at that point. I think the other element of it is that Hope 6 incorporated processes of participation on the part of tenants. So HUD required local housing authorities to involve the existing tenants when uh, when Hope 6 applications were made and when um, design plans were made. And so you, you, you saw housing authorities organizing tenants, getting them uh, to design charrettes and, and talking to them, uh, co- collecting their ideas. Uh, they would often ask residents, what would you like your community to look like? What kinds of changes would you like to see in your community? And what they were doing was they were purchasing buy-in from these communities, they, from these residents. They were, they were facilitating the, uh, the acquiescence of those, of those residents by implying a couple of things. One, that they were going to have an important impact on the design outcomes uh, that were finally uh, decided upon. And second, that they would, in fact, inhabit these new communities after the after the demolition had occurred and after the redevelopment had occurred right so they were and i think this is one of the more despicable elements of of hope 6 is that it did create it played on the desire of communities uh, of public housing residents to live in better communities uh, and to live in in new communities that were designed for them and it therefore sort of bought their acquiescence in a uh, in in a process that, in the end, really had almost no additional impact on those tenants other than to displace them. One of the most consequential features, I think, of the destruction of public housing are its political and ideological ramifications beyond the impact on the immediately displaced people, or the fact that we've experienced not only a net reduction in public housing units, but since since the year 2000, a net reduction in per capita deeply uh, and moderately affordable units, regardless of whether they're traditional public housing or not. But you write, quote, public housing, as it was conceived during the New Deal, 
and as it has operated during the subsequent decades, is no longer seen as a viable policy option for meeting affordable housing needs. So whether we're talking in more conventional American terms about the Overton window or in Gramscian terms about hegemony, whatever, in the midst of today's housing crisis, both this acute crisis in the past couple of years and also a longer running crisis over the past few decades as rentals have become increasingly unaffordable to tenants, what has it meant that the idea of more public housing has not been on the table, has not been even conceivable as a possible solution, at least until very, very recently. Yeah, I mean, this is the ultimate victory of uh, of the of the neoliberal approach is to uh, eliminate uh, public housing a- as an option, right? And that was only possible after an extended period of stigmatization and delegitimate uh, delegitimization of public housing, right? This was the creation of that discourse of disaster, which emerged over a period of 20 years or so and was in part the result of the racialization of public housing. That was the first step, was the was to delegitimize public housing. And the second step then was to find a palatable way of demolishing it and eliminating it uh, as an option. And that's where the ideas of, of new urbanism, of dispersing concentrations of poverty, that was the um, the weight carried by those ideas was to to get us to a place where we no longer even consider public housing as a as a viable option for meeting the very real and very extensive housing needs that we have uh, in this country that have only gotten worse uh, since we started tearing down uh, public housing as well. And so, so that's the that that's the that's the real importance. I think. I think there was uh, it was accompanied by a a campaign that really was a, a misdirection campaign of 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 getting us to focus on problems that weren't problems, uh, such as modernism, uh, such as um, concentrations of uh, of poverty. Uh, when when those problems uh, that that really affected public housing had to do with uh, with commitment. And investment levels, uh, et cetera, and you layer on top of that the kind of paternalistic uh, approach that we took, uh, which was to determine uh, as outsiders what was "quote unquote" best for public housing residents, uh, instead of meaningfully uh, involving them uh, in the process. And then you add what I think is uh, a certain sort of self-congratulatory element of thinking that we have made the brave choice, that we have made a, a created a strong response to the, uh, to the worst problems of urban poverty. Uh, we've looked the problem uh, directly in the eye and, and, and made the difficult choice of tearing down those units uh, to build a, a, a new and different uh, urban environment. All of those conceits uh, are are really uh, <laughs> problematic to me, but reflect a, a pretty well-functioning sort of zeitgeist. Well, Edward Getz, thanks so very much. Thank you for having me.
Edward Getz is a professor of urban planning and director of the Center for Urban and Regional Affairs at the University of Minnesota and the author of New Deal Ruins, Race, Economic Justice, and Public Housing Policy. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that one part of society thus exacts tribute from another for the permission to inhabit the earth, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theo Rio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes, please also rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling your friends to check out the pod. Either real-life friends or internet friends. Either are great. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Thank you.